0: Before we dive into today's show, quick message for our patrons. We are so sorry about the rescheduled workshop, but just know that it's a high priority for us to get it rescheduled, to receive updates and announcements about when that will be happening. Make sure you stay tuned into your email and the Patreon feed where we will announce the rescheduled workshop. Thanks for your patience. See you soon.
2: We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey.
1: Hi guys, welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. Today we are talking about a topic that we've brought up a few times on the show, or many times, uh, and we really haven't covered it really on the show, so we thought today we would do it, which is Character polls.
2: So I'm excited about the show because uh, Meg talks about this and I want to learn more about it. So Meg, this is your party today and I'm just a guest. I put
1: on my best party dress. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll talk about it in a minute, but first let's get to our week or what we call adventures in screenwriting. Laurian, how was your week?
2: My week was good. I uh, I had a a meeting last week that was pretty exciting and uh, I talked to an exec and she was like great send me four ideas i did she picked two so i'm developing those so i'm excited about that uh hopefully that will become something that becomes something uh but i was working on that all weekend so it was really fun and then um i'm also working on character design for my animated project which has been such a fun adventure because you know you read a script and you see the characters, you know, read it, but then once you get into like characters and shape language and, you know, that's like when you, when you think about up, right. Carl's a square, Russell's an egg shape, you know, uh Muntz's head is shaped like a skull. Their characters really define their point of view, right. Different from a live actor and live action actor. Uh, so it's really fun to get at who the character is and how you want the audience to perceive them. And then, you know, obviously in animation, you have to create everything. So it's, you know, what kind of do they have and how big are their ears and what's the style overall for all of them, uh, which helps when you have a brilliant character designer, which we do. So I'm very excited about that. And, um, and also colors, colors, the color story of the characters is so important. You know, like the saturation level on the blue that you pick really matters and the main character versus the other characters. So it's been a lot of fun conversations. And as always, I learn a ton and I'm so thankful to be working with people who are so much smarter than I am, which is such a gift, right? Cause I can be like, I want her to feel like this. And then they are able to interpret that into actual design. Uh, so they have this ability to listen to me talk nonsense about how feelings it should be. And then they can turn it into actual visual storytelling.
1: It's not nonsense so, because I just want to tell you, because my son was just listening to an interview with, I believe it was between um, the director of Dune and the composer. And he said, you know, in this part, I would just say to him, I want this to be sound delicate. And my son who likes to compose was like, oh, my God, I never realized that as a director, you don't say the, what instrument you want or the sound you want, because that is the composer's job. It's the storytelling and the emotion yes. that I want there. And it's the same for character design, right? Don't you think? I mean, yeah, it's so much of your job as is to create that emotion as a writer. And then the director has to take that emotion and create everything else with it.
2: Yeah, because I'm I'm not an artist, right? I I know, I know, I know I what I respond to. Um, but when I say I can't get into like the size and the shape of the nose. I need to be like, I want it, her, no, her nose is not cute. you know. I want her to have a right. bigger nose or a nose that is odd or interesting that makes her face feel interesting. Um, uh, and it's always really helpful when you're working with character designers to be like, I like these things. I don't like these things, right? Um, or, and then they can say like, well, why don't you like these things? Or what do you like about these things? And then they can help drive the conversation in a really fun way. But yeah, if I can stay very high level, I want it to feel like she's welcoming us in this pose, right? I want it to feel like she's, you know, keeping people away from her in this pose. Um, then, then you give the artist that you're working with an opportunity to put themselves into it as well, which you're always going to get yeah. something better. Yeah, Being Is never never a good tool. And uh, in my experience, when I do micromanage, uh, what comes back is uh, boring.
1: (laughs) And if anybody's interested in learning more about this, and as a writer, it is interesting. Uh, You don't have to be an artist to care about this to see. I mean, I learned so much working at Pixar with all the artists. Um, The art of books from the movies are amazing. They have art of books from every Pixar movie that you can buy. And um, you can go through and see that you know, joy started as the shape of a starburst. Um, sadness is a teardrop. Fear is a raw nerve, right? So you can go through and see how all of that, everything that she's talking about, you can actually see them doing it in every movie. Yeah. It's pretty amazing stuff. Um, Jeff wanted to jump in here. I know this week.
0: Well, I know Meg has been watching the Olympics. Is anyone else on the Zoom watching oh, yeah. the Olympics right now?
1: I'm a big nerd. Yeah, I am. Olympic nerd. I yeah.
0: there's something about it, I think like particularly being a writer that like the Olympics are just the best thing on planet Earth. Like, but yeah, I was talking to someone at a party, and he was like, "I can't wait for the Super Bowl." And I was like, "Oh, I'll be watching like the Super G." Like I, he was like, "Well, what do you like more about the Olympics than the Super Bowl?" And for any Parks and Rec fans, I described it as the Super Bowl is Eagleton and the Olympics are Pawnee the Olympics are all like the weirdos who like ride a sleigh down a giant mountain at the highest level possible. And I like kind of identify with that. And I feel like writers in general, we sort of have that underdog spirit about us. So I very quickly have five things that we can learn as writers that I'm taking away from the Olympics. I want to start with Jason Brown, who is a solo figure skater competing with Nathan Chen for the US team. Um, I know both of you watch this. Uh, Meg and I were texting about it. Lorian, what did you think of Jason Brown? I see you nodding. I'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: I, I was so blown away by his, like the artistry in it. Right. They kept saying like, he doesn't have the quad jumps that the other do others do, but, but his storytelling Mm -hmm. in, in the movement of his body, he was such a dancer. I thought it was beautiful.
0: Beautiful. And I don't,
2: I don't know a lot about his history either. So I wish they would do that more in the Olympics. Like, well, these we two used to dance together, and oh, this happened. Like, I want right. more of the gossip, but they're not doing it this year.
0: <laughs> I hear you. I know there's been a little bit, but not enough. But I, I totally agree with you on the way you're like reading Jason Brown's performance. He was never going to medal, most likely, because again, he doesn't have the same technical level as some of these other skaters. He can't perform a quadruple spin, which is kind of like the new way to medal as a skater. But far and away, he was the most artistic and elegant dancer of all the other competitors. And to me, it's such a lesson as writers, like how much our voice matters, right? Even if you're not the Academy Award winning whatever, if you have a really strong voice and your writing makes an impression in a way that feels like a very pure distillation of who you are, you're gonna get attention. And in some ways he's my favorite performer of anyone, even though he's not doing the same fancy stuff that everyone else is doing. So to me, that's like a beautiful takeaway as a writer about committing to what makes us special as a writer, even if we don't have the same thing that someone else might have. Um, Which I
1: think Charlie agreed with you in our manager uh, episode is exactly Mm -hmm. what he said. That's yeah. what he's looking for, and that's what people lose along the way. Well,
0: and quickly, if Jason Brown were to try to be Nathan Chen, he would not be in the Olympics, right? He wouldn't be competing because no, he, be. he has a different skill set, and it's very him and it's beautiful. So, that was one thing that excited me as I was watching it and I thought of our show. Just a couple other quickies. I have a list. Let me pull it up. Sorry, y'all.
1: I love it. Don't be so sorry. I know.
0: Um, oh, it's really fucking hard. Pardon my French. But, um... <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's, it's a few select few people who really get to do this, but, um, all of them, no matter how talented they are, all of them are working very, very, very hard. And what's beautiful is hard work can pay off. And a lot of these athletes talk about in their interviews, I actually wasn't the best at this five years ago. And I had some of my peers in the same space where we had more natural talent, but I outworked them. Um, and that's true of us too. I mean, like I think it can be easy to look at other writers and assume that they have more talent or natural prowess or whatever. Um, but I really do believe that if we outwork them and commit to this and you know, make it something that is a beacon, as Meg says, we can do it. Um, I don't know if you guys saw Lindsay Jacob Ellis and Nick Baumgartner during Snowboard Cross. Uh, Meg, I see you nodding. To me, we talk a lot about how age can be such, it's such an ageist industry and age can be something that holds us back. But the two oldest gold medal snowboarders ever, Lindsay Jacob Ellis and Nathan, or Nick Baumgardner, both won this, this season, which was amazing. It was snowboard cross and, um, they were a team together. And in their case, they were talking about how it was their experience, um, and their age was really an asset for them rather than a hindrance. Um, they competed in a way that was different than the rest of the field and, um, it, it was just really, really cool to see a team of the two oldest winners ever together um, win together. It was just very exciting. So I remember that- I love that, that
1: it, you said they competed differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes if you're trying to keep up with, if you're an older writer, the younger writers, not that you don't need to know what's going on. You do, you need to know what's happening, but you know, your gift is your experience and how you do it and how
0: you it. Absolutely. And they, they utilized their experience to get ahead, which I thought was really- really special. And I do have a quick photo from this race that connects to my fourth point. Um, And that is um, this photo right here. So this is the Italian snowboarder. I forget his name, I'm sorry to say. But he's embracing Nick Baumgartner here as they're watching their teammates finish the race. It's this really beautiful hug and I think expression of male friendship, even though they're competitors. So, what this photo shows is both of them waiting for their teammates to cross the line, and neither of them knows who's gonna win yet. One of them is gonna win gold and one of them is gonna win silver, but they both know that they're gonna win. And so they embrace with excitement as they anticipate to see what's going on. So, I think it can be so easy to feel competitive with our peers in this business. But so often in the Olympics, we see these beautiful friendships, and it's almost a spirit of competitiveness that forces these peers to rise with each other. So I was just so moved by that as the race was finishing. Um, <laughs> the last one I have is also photo related, and I will tag these photos in the um, the description of the episode. But I think so often we can assume that like this is such a cool, sexy business, and television is amazing, but we're not always seeing behind the curtain that the industry can be kind of a grind. And sometimes what we see on TV is way sexier than what life is actually like when you work in this business. So I have one photo of what the hill looks like when we watch it on TV. And then I have another photo of what it actually looks like in Beijing. <laughs> so there's the hill surrounded by all of Beijing. It's right by a nuclear power plant. And I think my point here is- steel plant. It's, it's
1: actually a steel plant. It's a steel plant. It's a steel plant.
0: That's good to know. So it'll be lung cancer rather than um,
1: <laughs> it's not. It doesn't hasn't worked. Personally. It hasn't been operational since like the eighties or something like um, it's it's an, a closed down steel plant. But my husband keeps saying the exact same thing. Every time they pull out a wide shot, he's like, what? what?
0: <laughs> Somehow all the skiers got radiation poison. No, I'm just kidding. But I think the point I'm trying to make is sometimes we're so attracted to this business because we want to go to fancy parties and wear gowns or whatever, because, you know, The TV business looks so fun. And first of all, none of that's happening because of COVID anyway, but I think you really have to get in it because you love the craft and you love the experience of being a writer. And these skiers would be skiing on any hill, whether it was in the fanciest mountain in Europe or next to a defunct steel power plant in Beijing, because they love the sport. So just remember to get into it for the right reasons, because you never know what's happening around you. You only know what you're doing in the moment. So that
1: photo, when you guys see it, it also shows like the, the metaphor of Hollywood, like the red carpet and the bling and it looks so amazing. And then you pull out. Cause like there's no other snow right. within sight for a hundred miles because it's all fake.
0: It's all fake. Right.
1: <laughs> it's still fun. We're still, still skiing. Yes, We're still, sure. but you know, well, at some point, none of this is actually. Right. I love all this, Jeff. I
2: want to add one thing. Yes. I was watching um, the ice dancing Um ice dancing last night and, you know, which is this very lyrical, beautiful, rhythmic, you know, I think, you know, overhead lifts are a bit, you can't do them very limited jumps and things like that. Um, and I'm thinking like these people have been doing this and falling on their ass and breaking their bones and getting stabbed by each other's skates and smacking each other. And like, just the, just the physicality of it. But what we see at the Olympics is this beautiful performance then we can go like uh-oh oh they were off sync right we're we're so able to spot the like problems just like when we watch a tv show right we don't see the like 35,000 drafts it took to get there the rehearsals the every you know the filmings everything so what we see on tv is like oh that continuity the coffee cup
1: moved you know when I know and we're all the experts right like for the five second uh introduction yeah. now we're the experts yes. i saw it it's the same thing when yes. you're the receiver of criticism from people who are the experts you're just kind of like yeah i used to tell my students if you're a person who is taking a movie and just dragging it down and how much you hate it, that means you're not in the business because anybody <laughs> in the business knows how hard it is to even make a piece of shit. So you always are like, you know, it just wasn't for me or here's what I didn't relate to. Or I really like, 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 it's fine. I mean, okay. We all have our movies that we're like, I don't get that. But mostly you totally do have appreciation. I totally, but I it's totally this
2: difference it. between like when you're watching I mean, I love the ice skating, right? I love the athleticism of it, the beauty of it, that the acting, the performance and how they're all so different. Jeff, what you were talking about, how they all lean into their skills, right? Um, oh shit, I forgot what I was going to say. God damn it. Oh, when people, think, yeah. yeah, when people mess up, I always have this feeling of like, oh no, like I am i don't want them to, but I do know there are people who are like, ha ha, right? That there's just such a difference in the sort of triumph over somebody fucking up or the oh god they work so hard to get there um although i will admit there there is one skater i don't like and so i was happy when they fucked up but um (laughs) how dare i right how dare i don't know these people but you know we whatever um but there's just such a difference like how you're approaching work your own work success you know other movies like it's like oh that didn't work out i could see what they were going for and it didn't quite hit it rather than like what a piece of garbage you know it just did Slightly different mindset. Yeah. Um, I will but, say though, no, It's funny yeah. when I,
0: whenever I start the Olympics, I'm like, okay, what is this again? And then by the second week, I'm like, that that Twizzle sequence oh, yeah. had some. Um,
2: <laughs> I know Twizzles. Some lack of synchronicity.
0: I'm like suddenly an I expert. I'm like, ooh, they, right. they went for the quad lutz and not the quad Kao. Ka. I don't know about that. Yeah,
2: ooh, that they were. You know, he's a level four, she's a level three. Mm-mm, yeah. It's gonna be a deduction. What yeah. the hell am I talking about?
0: <laughs> I know nothing. It's like executives, right? <laughs>
2: When they no, talk
1: executives, no,
0: executives, no. no executives know. I'm um, teasing. No executives
1: know about the twizzles. Yes, Trust Trust me, they, know. they know the twizzles better yes. than you can twizzle. They know
0: the twizzles. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's my Olympics rant. Thanks for getting on uh, getting that's on my train. Fantastic. For a
1: Hey everyone, so the new version of Final Draft, Final Draft 13, is out, and you know, the question's going around, is it worth it? Is it worth it to buy or upgrade? And our answer is yes. So
2: I recently got notes on a pilot, and I want to see how it works in my rewrite to move a couple of scenes, and usually what I do is, you know, cut and paste, uh, which works out sometimes, but mostly it means I lose text because I move so quickly. But the new version of Final Draft has this cool feature called Navigator 2.0 where you can actually just move scenes around right in your script so without losing something I can see what's working what I'm missing or what needs to be rewritten or you know, if I have to lose the scene altogether. But it's really really helpful and what's most important to me about this is that I'm not losing anything. Woohoo!
1: Yes. I am laying out a new project and I want to card it and I can now do that inside of Final Draft and it's now a super easy way. You can take those cards and then make them into an outline with a simple drag and drop. So it's just a great way to see the larger story that you're writing and get down the details, track characters. I just love it. And for our emerging writers, a great new feature is Final Draft lets you set writing goals like page count or timed writing sprints, which is super cool.
2: So uh, we think the new version is really worth uh, investing in. So you can head over to final draft.com slash products to get the new version with a discount code of screen FD for
1: 25% off. You should check it out. That's screen FD, S-C-R-E-E-N-F-D. Yeah. yeah. All right, Meg, so, how was your week? Oh, that's forgot. I was like so into this. Well, Olympics, of course. <laughs> so Great. I'm fighting my kids for the TV all the time because they're utterly uninterested in it. Um, I had an interesting experience where I got a call, you know, every writer in the world wants the call where somebody's saying, we want you to read something and consider making it into a TV show. Like everybody wants that. I mean, I'm not naive enough to think I'm the only writer getting this. I'm sure, you know, I'm one of five or something um, or 10 or who knows how many, Um, But as they're talking about this book, I can feel some part of my brain getting very excited, It's super juicy. It's in my wheelhouse. That slightly feels intimidating. I mean, I haven't even read the freaking thing. They're literally just talking about it. And already my brain is parsing it out. And it was so interesting because some part of my brain literally started to try to talk me out of it. Do you know what I mean? Like it literally started to tell me all the reasons, like you're going to have to go on location. If this is a TV show, where are you going? You're going to go fucking live in Africa or Italy or wherever it's going to be set for six months. How are you going to do that with a special needs kid? And you don't know anything about this and you're going to have to do research. Like it just started to really roll through to the point that at one point I can literally hear myself saying, well, I, you know, maybe I shouldn't even read it because, and I went all the way from absolute excitement to all the reasons I should, I can't can't do this. And then I just heard some part of my brain go, ah, fuck it. I'll figure it out. Just read it. Like, just fuck it. I'll figure it out. Like, I can't say any of those things my brain brought up are wrong. Yes. Having a special needs kid and taking him to wherever that would be hard. Right. What my, what is my husband going to do? Like, what? I, like, all of that is real. Oh, it's real. But I literally just heard in my brain. Yeah. Fuck it. Just figure it out. What you do at some point, you can't stop your brain from, laying down all those problems like it's just part of our creative process in terms of we have these big creative story brains that like pull random things together to make up a scenario which we do all the time um but at some point you also have to develop in your brain the fuck it like it just fuck it like I don't know we'll I will figure it out and it'll be an adventure for my special needs kid I don't even job I still have to pitch I still have to do all this stuff I have to still get the job but you can't even try go get it if you're not in do you know what I mean like I when I worked for Jodie Foster she used to say well you know it's always the most the person who wants it the most who gets it you know she said sometimes even you don't want them but they just want it so bad in terms of coming in to get that rewrite job or that adapt that their passion is so electrifying that you end up being like, yeah, yeah, I guess you're doing it. Like, holy shit. Right. So I have to get there. And I do have that. Again, I'm not saying I don't have that electricity. I do. But my own brain started to tomp it down, tomp it down, tomp it down. Because and maybe it's because I want it too much. Like sometimes I think we do that to protect ourselves because you actually so want to write that story. And this can just be about a spec idea you come up with. You might get so excited about it that your brain starts to tell you all the reasons it won't work because you are so excited about it, right? And you don't want to be disappointed, right? So there's all different reasons our brains do this, but I was very um, aware of the fuck it part of my brain that came forward that I really think is part of the reason I have a career. (laughs) Because I can't tell you how many times in my life I just had to go, fuck it, I'll figure it out. Like I was working in advertising and I decided I don't want to do this job. And my friend called and said, Come out to LA and I had a billion reasons not to do it, including what do I do with my bookshelf? And my stepmother was like, You're gonna not change your life over a bookshelf. What are you talking about? And I was like, Yeah, what am I talking about? Fuck it. I'll figure it out. And I figured it out. And then I was an executive, I was working as an assistant. And I'm like, I don't, I, I've learned everything I can learn and you need a job. Fuck it, I'll figure it out. I mean, it just you just have to jump sometimes. I'm not saying do this like move to LA with no money and no place to live. Of course, you have to be smart about what you're doing. But sometimes you just also have to say, fuck it, I'll figure it out. My kid, (laughs) when he would go to bat, he would get so tense that he would strike out. So you can't, when you've got a 12-year-old up to bat, scream, fuck it, just fuck it. You can't scream that. So we would just scream, mantra, mantra, baby, which is, fuck it, like, just, like, who cares? Strike out, don't strike Mm -hmm. out, hit the ball, don't hit the ball. Because he got so, like, where's my hand supposed to be? Where's this supposed to be? Where am I supposed to put the ball? Like, he would over, and now his body isn't responding to his brain, and at some point, Mantra baby, fuck it. Just fuck it. Leave it. Um, I love that mantra. The other mantra baby. The other thing, um, I'm starting to do my travel plan. So I just wanted to mention this to anybody who's interested. I'm going to do a screenwriting safari uh, where uh, people come to Africa and we do a whole offsite kind of uh, retreat. Uh, It's in the fall, September 25th to October 1st. So if anybody's in the mood, my spots are actually all full, but there's three other great mentors, including Dan O'Shannon, who has won six Emmy Awards for New Heart, Cheers, Frasier, Modern Family. I mean, super duper. like, I would like to go to Dan Shannon, (laughs) to be honest with you. Like, I'm so excited to just be in the same room with him and hear him talk. Um, So there's really great people going. And I also wanted to mention that If you wanna get a sense of them on March 14th, we're gonna do a kind of live chat about screenwriting. Uh, They're mostly TV people. I think I'm the featured lady, Um, but I just thought that'll be fun. We'll post that on the Facebook page and you guys can all come and see, you know, if nothing else, it'll be a fun uh, perspective and information for you guys on screenwriting. Um, All right, so let's get on to the topic at hand. Um, So I always say character polls, uh, and what I mean by that is sometimes for me, it's very helpful at some point in the process. Now I might have this before a puke draft, I might not. I might think I have it and then realize halfway through the puke draft, I do not. Um, but what I mean by it is where does, it's super simple. Where does your character start and where do they finish? So when my husband once was working, he's a screenwriter and a filmmaker and he was once working with Harrison Ford And this was very clearly what Harrison Ford was wanting. Where do I start and where do I finish? And all as an actor play in between. And I worked many, many years with Jodie Foster and she would always need this. Where do I start and where do I finish? I'll play in between, but that's my sandbox, right? So where do I start? Where do I finish? That is a simple saying for features, but super complex in terms of what was contained inside of there. So I just try to think of them as the poles that are kind of holding up the circus tent. Do you know what I mean? Like, And it also helps you know right towards something or realize halfway through, oh, those aren't the poles. It just gives me some sort of um, context. And I have found even with studio executives and producers, actors absolutely need it. They absolutely have to have it. But even studio executives and producers, when they say what's their arc, this is what they're asking for. They start here, they finish here so intellectually you can talk about that of course but really what they're i'm talking about and what they're talking about is emotionally where's the character so that might be a transformation that might be a claiming like i talk about which is they're they're actually just claiming who they are they've been right all along but they didn't know the how of it they knew what it was but they didn't know how so the easiest one for me to think about is moana right like she's right she does need to go sailing her i want song makes sense but her how is wrong she thinks she has to go get this guy and he has to do it, but in fact, she has to do it. Right. So that her house switches and she has very, you know, at the beginning, she's questioning herself. And at the end, she's going to go be the hero. Right. So those are big shifts. The bigger the shift, the bigger those poles, the easier it is to write. I'm just telling you right now, like if your poles are like two degrees next to each other, I'm not saying don't do that. It's just, no, it's harder. It's much higher math. So do it. But if you're really just looking to learn it, and give yourself some a break, put those poles really far apart, as far apart as you can, right? So from good to bad, bad to good, whatever, we can talk about transformations and what those are in a second. But so when I talk about a character pole, I'm really talking about emotional moments in act one and in act three that clarify that arc, that transformation, that character shift, right? And usually what's really interesting is not all the time, but often they're mirror moments to each other even in how the director is directing the scene, how the characters that are involved, right? Um, so you can look at, um, and I have a clip that I showed during my seminar of The Godfather, where he brings Diane Keaton to this wedding and he explains to her who his family is and that they're murderers. They're criminals and murderers. And then he looks at her and it's a bright scene and where lots of people and he, And his sister's up there with her, with her husband, her husband that just got married. And he looks at Diane Keaton and he says, that's my family, Kate. That's not me. Now, at the end of the movie, we're in a dark room with dark paneling. His face is in shadow half the time. It's in half light, half shadow. She's standing there trembling, looking at him. You can hear a woman wailing. Well, the woman that's wailing is his sister because he has killed the groom. And now she looks at him and says, did you do it? And it's a great scene. You should go watch it. He literally says, don't ask me about my business. Don't ask me about my business. So this very open guy who was very, very generous and wanted to be intimate with her and was bringing her in like as his best self is now looking at his best self and saying, don't ask me any questions. I will not participate with you. He's completely changed. He's a totally different person. And she just says, and he says, okay, this one time I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you ask, I'll let you ask about my business one time. And she says, did you do it? And he lies and he says, no. And then he hugs her and she goes, get, goes and says, I guess we both need a drink. And she goes and gets a drink. And then she watches as the men walk up and kiss his ring and call him his father's name, Don Carione right? So there's the pull. I'm not my father. I am my father. That's why the last image is him being his father. And then they close the door on her face. They literally close the door. Like you're not allowed in anymore. He's bringing her in. And now he's closing the door on her face because he's become his father. It's, it's the way it's, it's so beautiful. It's so it's one is bright and open and wide and one is closed down and shut down and you're not coming in. And so they're beautiful pulls that once you kind of, and you might take drafts and drafts to really get them. Once you get them, it really, really helps. You know where you're going. And those pull moments in act one and act three, they contain the theme. They can claim, they can, they that character transformation, usually the main relationship is involved, whatever that relationship, Diane Keaton happens to be in my opinion, the heart relationship, like the relationship that he is trying to win and that he ultimately loses because he gives it up. Um, the goal and desire of that main character is answered or not answered, right? That's my parent, that's my father, Kate. That's not me, guess what? That's not true. And it doesn't, he becomes his dad. His want and his need, right? Is all inside of those things. And when you can, like I said, when you watch these poll moments, if you're looking for them in movies, the director's using them, the setting, the production design, the cinematography, the costumes, the acting, You know when you're watching that moment with him and the godfather i swear to god after she asked him the question you can see that boy he was flicker across his face it's like this last moment and then he it submerges and he's gone and he's just a different guy so the actors love to know these poles and how they're moving what are they changing um you know so i'm talking about those transformations can be big you know from you know, you know, what's great about, uh, you know, The Godfather, of course, it's a reverse, right? It's from conscious to unconscious. Usually your character's unconscious moving to consciousness, but some movies like uh, The Godfather flip it, right? So it can be a liar or a delusional person moving to truth. It can be revenge to forgiveness. Like these are big, big pots and words you can use for yourself to try to start to find those poles. Um, you know, in, in Godfather's case, it's awareness to unconsciousness going dark, so to speak um so that's what I mean by polls and um I can post some examples on the Facebook page that I have and these are not genre-based I have found them in thrillers I have found them in comedies I have you know because they're character-based that it's about what how is your character moving how how does act two take you from the first character moment to the last that's what act two is is getting them there that's I have my first act. I have my third act. How the hell are we going to get her there? Well, I'll tell you how, because this is going to happen and she's going to do it. Right. So Marlon and, and Nemo is literally like, you can't go off the reef and he's blocking him and grabbing him. And at the end, he's like literally saying, okay, f- swim up into the net. I'm letting you go. And he's literally doing the actual physical opposite. And when we were on uh, Inside Out, I'm sure you remember this, Lorian. I was just hammering this and hammering this and hammering this about joy. And all of a sudden, Ronnie Del Carmen was drawing because I was like, she's saying at the beginning, don't touch the core memories under any circumstances. Sadness cannot touch the core memories. And at the end, she's handing them over. Right. So there's a physical action in the poll. Keep there's a behavior that tells me character and theme and everything, the behavior, what is the behavior of the character? It's not necessarily a conversation. What is the behavior of the character? Joy is keeping those core memories away from sadness and now she's handing them over. And there's a beautiful drawing in the art of that Ronnie drew in the room, that's literally Joy holding them away and then handing them over. And that got hung on the wall. Like that's the movie in terms of that line of her character, that that's what we have to win. Um, it just helps your brain because you're going to have a million other things going on, right? To to kind of hold you uh, a, on a spine, so to speak, right? So does that make sense? Do you guys have any, I don't know, do you want to jump in here? I'm talking a lot, but I just wanted to explain what they are. It can work too for a premise
2: pilot. Uh, so a script I'm working on, I'm taking the character from, it's a premise pilot, right? So it's like, here's the beginning of her journey. Here's the trigger. So My opening scene with her is her um, clutching a steering wheel in her car, unable to move, right? In her car, unable to move, right? That's how she feels. The final scene of the pilot is her backing into something she thinks is in her way, like aggressively driving her car backwards into something. So for me, that was the story emotionally. I'm trapped. I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. And I'm pissed about it to fuck it. I'm going to just drive over whatever this bullshit is to get it out of my way, right? So it works. It can work in TV as well, right? As you move, it's a serialized show, right? So as you move your characters from, if you think about that in TV as well, it works. Of course, I do know what the final scene of the final episode in season five is, right? So getting her from in that car to that is the bigger swing and I know what the end of season one is as well but each episode needs to have that too so that as you're watching it you kind of have the experience the emotional the micro theme you know as it represents the bigger theme of the show so yeah
1: I mean I, I love that you say it. it's true like when I pitched the legendary project with Jonathan they we had to tell them the last scene of the last show why? Because they want to know the poles of the character and that I that we, Jonathan, and I knew it. And that show that last scene could have come five years, seven years. You know, we, there was a lot to do because, boy, it was a gigantic shift just gigantic right so you need a lot which is fun for a writer look how far we're gonna get her like and how the hell are we gonna do that with that guy because we know that's the guy that's the last guy that you would think is gonna get her there that's the fun that's the mystery right is the how she is she gonna every season every episode be the girl that you know has the terrible plan probably right like that is still the character is maybe not going to change at some deeper level because it's tv and we like to you know, I like to tune in and see how Catherine the Great's going to respond to this because I know she's Catherine the Great, and she's kind of not really as as, as 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 in the great as driven as she is, and aspirational as she is. She's also so naive, right? But in a weird way, her naivete starts to work for her. But it is she is shifting and changing as she's having to face things. So it is right. It it's kind of both happening at the same time, right? That you have these big poles for the whole show, and then you also have their deep character traits that they're always kind of running on. Um,
0: I think too, oftentimes these character polls can be still symptoms of the same trait that manifest in totally different ways. Like, like when you're talking about with Catherine the Great, her naivete at first serves as a huge hurdle to her, but it eventually becomes a big asset to her. Or if you look at like Walter White, he's always conscientious, right? Like at the beginning, he starts as a very earnest, conscientious science teacher. And at the end, he's a vile, wicked drug dealer, but he's still supremely committed to the science of what he's doing, conscientious about his business. So it's the same Walter White we know. So I think it doesn't necessarily mean they've, it doesn't mean that they've changed, it's really that they've changed their beliefs and their philosophies, but we still see the essence. I think brilliant writing is able to let us see the essence of who they are at the beginning, just through a whole new filter or lens at the end, maybe.
1: Yeah. And what I love about the great is he's really exploring how that naivete is a positive and how it's a negative. Mm -hmm. Like she's getting kicked in the face, man, and she is making wrong decisions. Right. And how, and so suddenly there's a question coming up of what is she going to do as she grows up and how will she hold on to her moral code? Right. Um, Which I just love those kind of stories, by the way. But um, so I, yeah. And I just think that you can also, there's an exercise you can do for your um, writing if you get stuck is, you know, which speaks to this in terms of character pulls, Um, decide who is the famous and they need to be famous because they need to have done a couple of movies as leads at least, actor that you would put in the role. You don't have to cast them. They could be, you know, 20 years ago. It doesn't matter, right? Don't think about the age, just think about the essence of the character. And then go and watch three of their movies and track their character and how it's moving. What are the poles of their character in those three movies? And you're going to start to see generally, usually a pattern that they tend to actors, movie stars tend to have, and I don't even know that they're aware of it, but they tend to have similar movements, like, and it, it's different when they're acting versus directing, by the way, it can be very different. Like Jodi often went from, as an actor, somebody who's being told she's not capable. And yet by the end, she realizes she's the most capable person in the room. And she's probably going to save the person who told her she wasn't capable. <laughs> right. And so you start to see it, right. Um, you know, Tom Cruise is always, a system where he's the very very best and he loves being the best and then he finds out that system is corrupt and because he is such a good person he gets kicked out by that system and now he has to bring it down right and so you can take an actor and you know a character structure to me is just the character where they where is the character movement so you can you can take an actor uh, and you can say, where do, where do they begin? How do they get introduced? What do they believe about the world? Um, what do they believe about themselves? Because again, that's the, hopefully the emotional point of view we're in, right? We're not 30,000 feet back. We are in. We believe the world is the way they believe the world is. And then what's the inciting incident that's gonna knock them on the head, right? And now, and you can tell this even by the, because a, a minute it's a page, right? So you guys know end of act one is somewhere between 20 and 30. So in that 20, 30, where's, here comes act one. What's their goal? What's their plan? What do they want? What do they need? All that stuff we've talked about. Where are they at the midpoint? Those generally don't line up, which is interesting. Where are they at the end of act two? What's their death moment, right? That's always about 90 minutes in generally. And where? what is the action of the third act that shows the change? There's the mirror moment from act one, right? that death moment brought them into clarity. Now they go and do it in act three. So if you do that with an actor, you'll start to see similarities and those polls will rise up and you can go back and look at your script and be like, do I have those poles? If that actor wanted to do this, what would they be grabbing onto? Right. What are the scenes they'd be grabbing onto? Like Lauren, you mentioned, if you were directing that actress, you would say, you're going to start here and you're going to end here. Right. And so in her brain, she knows, oh, I've got to that's what all these scenes are getting me to that. So they have a a runway uh, on which to do all of their incredible work.
2: And as I'm writing it, I'm like always thinking, where is she on the spectrum? Right. Because there's always a push pull in it, right? Like, okay, if I put her in her car right now, would she be driving forward, reversing, stuck, you know? So I'm always trying to think in each scene, what the push pull is as it relates to the car. Um, Because for me, that's her metaphor, right. Being yeah, able to so escape great. or park. Right. So, so as I, you know, I recarded it out, you know, and then I was like, okay, well, I don't know what, I love this scene, but where is she in the car? Right. right. Is she out of the car? Or is she in it? And so then I had to retool it to make sure it worked. Um,
1: that's so uh, good. Such we, a great metaphor. Know. I love it. I mean, what you're going to find sometimes is some actors, if you're doing this as to help yourself, like we, I had a friend Lori and I have a mutual friend who did this with um, Angelina Jolie, and what was interesting was her indie films had a completely different arc than her giant action, you know, studio movies. In her indie films, her arcs, like the, you know, like Mighty Heart or The Changeling, she usually, you know, starts out weak or someone who perceives themselves as weak, which is important—the perception of weakness. Um, and then finds her strength. Whereas in the big action movies like Laura Croft or Mrs. or Mrs. Smith, she is tough and learns vulnerability. They're opposite arcs. So um, that's kind of, you know, that's an exercise you can do to help you see polls. We'll post some on the Facebook page. Um, I don't know, you know, Jess, Jess is on. So i just want to ask Jess, if you have any other questions or is there anything you think I need to explain more?
2: Uh, I don't think so because, like, I'm just sitting here listening to it um, and being very selfish and thinking about my feature the entire time.
1: Good, <laughs> I hope so. Yourself. That's the point. <laughs> um, I
2: think, like, along the way, like, I feel like that opening and closing image and and the mirroring is super clear and something great to work to. I feel like I'll be someone who will get lost in the middle. Um, that's probably the thing that's not super clearest to me, but midpoints are always really hard for me anyway.
1: Well, that is tricky, right? Like that is why you do many drafts, even and the polls can you can realize halfway through aren't right, right? You know, there's many things that can start shifting around but let's assume you have the right polls um, and you've dug deep enough into what they are. Yeah, the middle is why you're writing many drafts because sometimes you're not beating them up enough. You're not pushing them hard enough. Um, you're protecting them, not you just you as in the general you. Um, we are, most of us protect our main characters and don't beat them up enough because they're us, right? And un- unconsciously, they're us, and we don't want to beat them up. Um, or we, the other thing we can, we do often, all of us, especially I've done this, is, and I do this all the time, you don't even realize you're doing it, but they're just reacting to everything. And you literally, it's, you know, in your brain, you change because of behavior, because of being forced into make choices that actually burns pathways in your brain just receiving doesn't like you could listen to a hundred podcasts. It doesn't matter if you're not actually writing. Right. So um, sometimes your characters, you're going to find in that act too, you haven't earned that shift because they haven't actually done anything to prove it's shifting. They're just responding to things that everybody else is doing to them versus um. I'm going to get out of the car today and go to get my hamburger or whatever. I don't care. I don't know. Clearly, you know, something more about me now that I just said that, but, um, versus I'm waiting for someone to come and kick my tire, right? Like, again, I'm not, I'm not saying someone can't come and kick the tire, but uh, what I want to know is what she does when someone kicks the tire. That tells me her character. That tells me shifts that something's happening. She's getting pushed into behavior. Um, She's making choices. That's often when, if you don't have that, you're going to get a very mushy, reactive. And it's so easy to do because your brain is so trying to do plot. And it's so much easier just to have them to react to plot. I do it every first draft. I like Frank. They're just- But it's a
2: really good, that's a really good example. Like somebody kicks her tire. If somebody kicks her tire at the beginning, and this is a character who's stuck in a fear world, she would, uh, what would she do? Right, like just get in her car, wait till the guy leaves. Um, and then when she's overcompensating somewhere in the middle, right, she pushes him down and runs him over. I have very violent scripts, I will admit, <laughs> but this um, is important. No, but, but then,
1: yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
2: But then, you know, at the end, when she's found, let's say it's about balance, right? That fear is a good warning, but it's not trying to kill you, right? It's trying to keep you safe, right? But you don't need to be super aggressive about it. Then she would do something else, right? It's sort of where she is on the spectrum of long, those poles. And
1: here's the tricky part. I'm talking to my son's talking about this all the time because he's trying to grok what I'm saying. Even, Even when the person walks up and kicks her tire and she has a fear response and doesn't act how she shows her fear and what she does is character right beeping the horn and then putting a hat on so he can't see her face is one thing versus giving him the finger but not getting out of the car is another thing Mm -hmm. like that those specifics of who she is is so important to make me love her that's when andrew stanton screaming i don't fucking love your main character even if they're reacting, how they're reacting, how they're being inactive is super important, right? Like um, Andrew gave an example once, like, you know, oh, your character's afraid to go out in the world. So what is the first scene you're gonna come to mind? The first scene, oh, he's at home in his room, all the, you know, the, the drapes are drawn and he's on his computer and he just lives on his computer. And he's like, okay, everybody thought of that. That, who's that? I don't know who that is. That could be a hundred different people. I want to see the guy who we opened this movie and we're at a 7-Eleven and there's a guy skulking around with a dark hat on and he's got his hood up and he won't let anybody see his face. And we're like, oh my God, is he going to rob the place? Whatever, he's waiting for everybody to leave. And then he walks up and says, I'd like a candy bar. Like it's how he wants something, right? Is driving him out. Like, so the question maybe in that car is what does she want in the car when she gets frightened? if I got frightened but I really want the hamburger (laughs) what then what do I do maybe that's the element we're missing is the want Mm -hmm. is still there Mm -hmm. the want is still there even though right even though they're being reactive that doesn't mean that want isn't still there so again so much of this comes back to knowing your character's want and the drive And I know that maybe they don't know it, but you need What if she doesn't get the
2: hamburger, right? What are the stakes around it, right? So just add another layer. Just another layer.
1: this is what happens (laughs) is layers and layers and layers. But then they all kind of come together, hopefully, and create a thing. Well, Mm -hmm. I hope this has, Jess, does that make any sense what I'm saying? (laughs) She's not people. This has been incredibly helpful.
0: (laughs) Would you say it's safe to say, Meg, it's usually some act of courage that pushes your character toward that last pole. There has to be some kind of act of bravery in most circumstances, right?
1: Yeah, it might be internal, it might be external, it might be the end of the world. If it's a Marvel movie, it might be very, appear outside very, very small, but internally we know that's huge. But yes, because they, yes, because if the pole at the end is so different than what they would have done at the beginning, you know, what can your character do at the end they could never have done at the beginning? It will still take bravery. It doesn't mean they they left that who they were behind. They still have all those fears and all that uncertainty. They just now see themselves in a different way, right? Moana still doesn't want to freaking go up and deal with that monster, right? We're all still scared. The stakes are still very high, right? Um, She still doesn't know how to really do it, right? In the doing it though, usually, I think that's why some people talk about, you know, in the climax, you can have a setback. I think because the character still has one last thing to come like figure out or move towards, right? Cause it's it's not gonna be A to B in that climax. We're gonna have a surprise. We're gonna have, and we're gonna push them one more time. So absolutely, it still takes bravery. It still takes courage
0: to do that climactic act. But there's more called. certainty.
1: There is more certainty, you know?
0: I always assumed what character poles would be like North and South pole, like the sides of a magnet. But I love that because it still kind of works because it's like two sides of the same magnet that represent opposites, but are still part of the magnet. It's kind of interesting.
1: Well, I, we could start talking Jeff about you what kind of characters you like.
0: I, I don't know. It's, I just, <laughs> I love that it works for both. It's, I don't know. It's just such a, it's such a both simple, but generative way to think about like grounding your work, right?
1: It just helps because you're going to go through so many drafts and get so many notes. And, you know, this is the base, right? And if you don't keep moving back and asking these questions every time you're rewriting, have these polls shifted? Have they gotten deeper? Have they gotten more clear? Do people get them? Because sometimes I totally get the polls and they don't get it. And I'm like, shit, they totally don't get it. They're, they missed it completely. That means they're not they're not there. They're not clear enough. Um, that's always the hardest when you're like oh my god her behavior isn't showing it it's not it's not clear enough yet
2: just have her Um, drive over somebody it's very clear (laughs) or stab someone or set something on fire those are go-tos for me (laughs) they work i'm a very subtle writer
1: as you can tell (laughs) well thank you meg that was really helpful thank you so there we now we know when i say that and we say that on the show what i mean but thanks Seth, for tuning in If you haven't yet, join our Facebook group and email us at the screenwritinglife at gmail.com. And now when you're on Patreon and you get to pitch to us and I say, what are your character polls? You will know what the hell I'm talking about. (laughs) Uh, Please write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and you may hear your review read on the show. Remember, you
2: are not alone and keep writing.
0: Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life or email us at the screenwriting life at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it and not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.